morning. <clears throat> well, uh, before I get started, there is an announcement. Uh, Jack is up in Idaho again. He's uh, doing a family conference up there for a sister church. And, um, but I wanted to make sure that you knew about the next two Sundays upon his return, he's going to do a Q&A. And so if you have any questions that you want to ask him, uh, even stuff like gardening, things like that, he'd probably want to... Um, <laughs> You know, send him a few zingers, too, just some weird, weird ones that really get him. Uh, but to do that, there's some forms out in the foyer. Feel free to, to fill them out. You can give a copy to one of the ushers or to Ruth Fish, or you can email your question to ruthf at calvarybiblechurch.org. Make sure you do that by Wednesday at the latest, just to give him time to be able to look at the question and, and formulate a response. So with that, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Ephesians 4. And to introduce our, our subject this morning, I wanted to relate to you uh, an account, an incident that occurred when I was in college. I was part of a campus Bible study there, and we would go out on Friday nights uh, often and go uh, street witnessing. We would go uh, kind of like you see on the way of the master, except there's no video camera and, and no Kirk Cameron there. It was just us. We were out proclaiming the gospel, and there was one part in Westwood called Preacher's Corner. And it's uh, one where the various religious groups would compete for airtime. So we were often there with the Hare Krishnas and trying to, to get them off so that we could uh, share the truth. Um, and one evening we were there, there was a, a man there proclaiming the gospel, a street preacher, very articulate, very powerful speaker. He was a, a shorter man. He had an overcoat on with a hat. He had a, a German accent. And uh, he was very impressive. He was fielding many questions from the, from the group and, and able to... Uh, very articulately respond to them. And I was impressed with them, so I thought, I want, to, I want to talk to this guy and get to know him. I was a young believer, and he made an impression on me. So I went up and spoke with him for a time, and as we were talking, I asked him a question about whether, where he went to church. And his response was curious. He said, well, I, I don't go to church. I haven't gone to church in years. And that puzzled me a little bit. And so I asked him, well, well why not? And he stunned me with his answer. He said, I don't need to go anymore. You see, every time I go to church, I always know more than the preacher. Um, I don't get anything out of it. Yeah, I had the same response. I was a young believer, and I go, this just doesn't sound right. And a, a verse didn't pop in my head uh, like it might now, but I just thought, you know what? God wants us at church, doesn't he? And as the years have gone by, I've, I've met many people who claim to be believers, and as Bob mentioned earlier, don't go to church. Um, there are others who merely attend, and that's about it. Uh, one man I knew said that, I come to church only for the music, and if it weren't for my wife wanting to hear the preaching, I would just go home. You know, there's, there's a lot of folks like that. And what do these attitudes communicate to you about how they felt about the body of Christ? There are myriads of people who either don't go to church, or they do go, but they, they don't feel that their needs are met, or they only come to observe but not participate. That begs the question of all of us here this morning. Why are you here today? Why did you come this morning? To this church. What does God expect of you? Well, we know from Scripture that every believer is required to fellowship with fellow believers. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, right, says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the gathering together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching near. And part of the reason I think that people don't get involved in the body of Christ is that they don't see how they fit. They don't understand that they are a vital component to God's blueprint for his church. 
Some people seem to act like the pieces that are left over from a model that's been put together, right? You know, where you, you stick it together and you look down on the floor and there's some extra pieces. Or, or worse yet, guys, maybe if you're fixing your engine and there's a few extra pieces left on the side, <laughs> right? That we kind of feel that way sometimes, don't we? I'm just one of those extra parts. I'm not needed. Or some of us may feel like I'm just a duplicate. There are other people doing that, that ministry over there. I, I'm unnecessary. I don't fit in. Maybe they, maybe some people might feel like, I just don't feel needed around here. Well, this morning is not just another message on why you need to go to church. No, it is, it is much more than that. God has a clear and important purpose for each and every one of you. Turn with me to Ephesians 4 if you're not there yet, where we will see that you are being equipped to fulfill your responsibility to bring all believers to maturity in Christ. As we approach our text in Ephesians 4, you need to remember that you're entering the middle of a conversation. It's a conversation that's focused on God's grace, on his tremendous mercy and kindness, on his love for those of us who were dead in our sin, who were lost, who were slaves to sin, to Satan and to the world. We were without hope and without God. The conversation is focused on what God has done in order to bring us from that state into a relationship with him. And Paul was prompted to write this letter because the believers there were concerned for him. If you remember in Acts 20, the last time that he saw the Ephesians, uh, he said he was speaking to the elders there and he told them at the end of that departure that he said, I don't expect to see your face again. And after he left, he was thrown in prison. And now the Ephesians hear about this. This guy's in prison now and he told us he wasn't going to see us again. So they thought it's game over for Paul. So naturally they were very concerned for him. And so what Paul did is he sent Tychicus with this letter to the Ephesians in order to comfort them and in order to communicate to them that his torture, his suffering and his imprisonment was all part of God's plan. You see, he was explaining to them in this letter how God has not only saved you, but he has established his church and he's using me to bring the gospel to you and to establish a church among the Gentiles, a new organism, a new entity which includes both Jew and Greek, slave and free man, male and female, all equal in Christ. And he was using this letter to help them see and understand why he was in prison. It was an important reason. The main theme of Ephesians is we can see it in chapter 1, verse 4, where it says there, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. I think Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 summarizes this whole letter Uh, very well where it says there for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of god not as a result of works that no one should boast and then he goes on to say for or because we are his workmanship created in christ jesus for good works which god prepared beforehand that we should walk in them you see that there's two elements there we are not saved simply to populate heaven we are saved in order to have a worshiping relationship to the god who created us see god has saved us And he expects us to do something in response to that. In fact, we see that in the hinge verse of the letter in chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Therefore, being a key, therefore, in this letter, where he's referring back to chapters 1 to 3 and saying all that all that God has done in saving us, there's an expectation. God has saved us in order that we may Work out that salvation in order that we may demonstrate holiness and godliness and obedience in our lives. You see, God wants us to be blameless. And he uses this idea there of worthy, walking worthy. And that originally meant a scale. It referred to a balancing of a scale. 
And the picture Paul is presenting here as we enter chapter 4 is all that's been talked about in salvation might be one side of the scale, God's gracious salvation. And the other side of the scale is to balance that out. And that balance is your conduct. Is your conduct worthy? Is it consistent with the salvation, the radical salvation that God has performed in your life? And that's how chapter 4 begins. And 4 through 6 are a series of instructions, of commands, of calling to you and how you're to respond to that salvation. In fact, we see that very clearly with, with the idea that chapters 1 to 3, there's only one command given in Ephesians. Chapters 4 through 6, there are 40 commands. So there's a clear emphasis on, now, this is what you're supposed to do. And that first aspect, that first duty that Paul focuses on is you. It is the church. He focuses on your role in the unity and preserving that unity and also the growth of the body of Christ. And Paul's message to these believers 2,000 years ago is still applicable to you and to me today. Let's begin in Ephesians 4. We'll read verses 11 through 16, where it tells us there that you are being equipped to bring all believers to maturity in Christ. Starting in verse 11. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And as Paul is prone to do in this letter to the Ephesians, these six verses are one long sentence, no, no periods. Nothing. He just keeps going on. He probably would have flunked his Greek grammar class with too many run-on sentences, too many fragments here. But Paul does this a lot in Ephesians because he is really overflowing with an emphasis on a certain point. He wants to focus our attention on one key aspect. And here that aspect is seen in the main sentence, which is he gave some, and he finishes it in verse 12, for the equipping of the saints. And saints here are not a special class of Christian. Saints are everyone who has placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for their salvation and have been given forgiveness. That is a saint. Everyone here who has placed their faith in Christ is a saint. And if you are a saint, then listen up because this passage is aimed squarely at you. It is all focused on the fact that you're being equipped. The emphasis here is equipping. And we see that. I've noticed the outline in your notes there where the focus on equipping, equipping, the provision for equipping we see in 11 and the first part of verse 12. The purpose of equipping is seen in the last part of verse 12. The progression from equipping in verse 13. And finally, the product of equipping in the last three verses, verses 14 to 16. Let's look first at the provision for equipping in verses 11 and 12. Paul begins this paragraph by continuing a thought that he had introduced in verse 7 earlier in this chapter where he says that, We have been given gifts by Christ. Christ gives gifts to individuals in verse 7. And here in verse 11, Christ has given gifts of individuals, again, for you, for the express purpose to equip you for a task. The first group of individuals that Christ has given are called the apostles. 
And generally that word just refers to those who have been sent representing the sender with his, his authority. Uh, it's like the idea of a proxy. Epaphroditus and Titus are called apostles or in the Philippians 2 and in 2 Corinthians in this sense, just in a general sense. But the predominant use of the term apostle in the New Testament refers to the 12, the 12 disciples and Paul. And these were men that were specifically commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ and had his fully delegated authority on earth. Their office was confirmed by their ability to perform signs and wonders, as we see in Hebrews 2, 4. And Christ gave the apostles primarily for two purposes. One was to establish the church. We'll, we'll see that in Ephesians 2, 20. The other purpose was to de- declare, to receive and declare direct revelation from God, to establish his testimony, the New Testament. They were representatives, again, of Christ on earth. And the second group of individuals that God has given specifically for you are the prophets. And the prophets, uh, one scholar summarized their role as follows, and I quote, One endowed by the Holy Spirit with the gift of prophecy for the purpose of edification, comfort, and encouragement, as well as for the purpose of understanding and communicating the mysteries and the revelation of God to the church. Now, prophets, they were a separate group from the apostles. They, too, received and proclaimed revelation from God, but they didn't carry the same delegated authority as the apostles did. They were not representatives uh, specifically of Jesus Christ, but they spoke the truth that was given to them by him. Along with the apostles, these prophets played a pivotal role in the establishment of the church and of the New Testament. If you look back in Ephesians 3, 5, where it's speaking there in reference to the mystery of the church, it says there, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets. See, they were both given insight into the mystery of this church that God had established. If you look further back in Ephesians 2, 19 through 20, it says there regarding Gentile believers, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so there Paul paints the picture of the church as a building, and that building is set upon a foundation. And that foundation is made up with a cornerstone, that cornerstone being Jesus Christ, who sets the measure. He is the standard by which all other stones in that foundation are set. Those other stones are the apostles and the prophets. They are the foundation of the church. Without them, the church has no foundation. We have no New Testament without the apostles and prophets. Thus, in Ephesians 4.11, we learn that Christ gave these men to you to establish the church to provide you its doctrine, to give you the New Testament through direct revelation. These men were a one-time gift in order to provide that foundation of the church. When they died, there was no need for any further apostles or prophets for the New Testament had been established. But in contrast, the next three groups that we see here in verse 11 are still in effect today. That third group of individuals given specifically for you to equip you are called evangelists. That word comes from the idea of to proclaim the gospel or the good news. The primary function of these evangelists is to proclaim, to teach, and defend the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, all of us are called to be evangelists in a sense. We're all called to bring the gospel to the lost. But there are some that God has uniquely gifted and set aside to be evangelists. One example in the scripture would be uh, Philip in Acts chapter 8. A fourth group, which God had provided, is called here pastors, or a better idea, the root meaning of the word is shepherd. 
He's provided shepherds for you. Our modern culture has narrowed this term to carry the idea of those leaders who are paid to lead in the church. But, but it's, it's much broader than that. Shepherd here refers to elder, overseer, or what we would call pastor today. And we see that in Acts 20 when Paul was speaking to those same Ephesian elders. He told them there that to be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or elders, and to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. These terms are used interchangeably. So when you hear the term pastor here in Ephesians 4, think elder, think overseer, think pastor, think shepherd. Okay, it's referring to, to that office. It's the same office. These men have been provided in order to care for you, in order to feed you the, the word of God, in order to protect you from error. They are to do that through the nurture and care for you. Christ has given them to equip you. They're a gift. In the same way, the fifth category, the fifth group of individuals he's given are teachers. And teachers are those who faithfully interpret and explain the scripture and, and how to apply it. And this, uh, the idea of teachers here, it's a distinct category from pastors. Pastors are to teach as well. But this group of individuals may not have an oversight role like pastors or elders would. But they too are to be accurate as they teach. And the Lord in his kindness and his providence, he has given the gifts of elders to you. He has given Great teachers here at Calvary to you in order for a purpose, for a task. Now, why did I spend all this time on all these different uh, groups? We could have slid through them quickly. But the point is, I wanted you to see how many resources you have been specifically provided. There's a bevy of resources overflowing for one specific purpose, and that is to equip you. It is God's version of the dream team that he presents here in this verse. You've been given these resources. The question is why? Why has God given you these gifts? For what purpose? Look at the beginning of verse 12. What does it say there? He's given these gifts to you for your equipping, for the equipping of the saints. And the word here for equip uh, could also be translated prepare. And it originally was used to describe the resetting of a bone that had been broken. And it connoted the idea of fixing something that was broken or incomplete by restoring or training. And the Lord in his providence decided to give me a personal illustration of this word last Sunday morning, about four in the morning, as I was getting out of bed to use the restroom and uh, my little toe abruptly and forcefully located the metal chair within our bedroom. <laughs> and uh, my wife knew that I jammed it pretty good because I uh, you know, had a cry of pain and I, I didn't say anything I shouldn't have. So you can <laughs> you can ask her. She affirmed that in first service, but. Uh, she, you know, she asked me, so, uh, or at first I said, oh, it's broken. I, I broke my toe. And she said, how do you know? I said, well, I, I can feel it. And she thought I meant I could feel the pain, but actually I was feeling my toe. And then she said, well, how can you tell as she flicked on the light and both of us uh, looked down at my toe, which was sticking out at about a 45 degree angle. <laughs> I said, well, it's turned the wrong way. I'm pretty sure I, I broke it. I tried to snap it back in place, but it uh, it hurt too much. So we went to the doctor, and uh, he, he the X-ray showed it was it was snapped. I totally cracked it, and uh, he thought it was pretty impressive. He, you know, hey, check this out! This is amazing. Um, can I do it to you, doctor? Uh, no, but he, you know, he cranked it back into place, and uh, uh, he taped it to what they call the buddy toe which is the, the guy next to him. And uh, you see where I'm going with this illustration. Um, you know, in the same way, we too are like a broken bone. We need a buddy toe to help us. 
We are all incomplete. We're all immature in our walk with Christ. And Christ has given you really five buddy toes. He's given you these five offices to equip you and to train you to repair or to complete what is lacking in your ability to minister to others in the body. Um, yeah, I, I know it's reaching, but hey, you know, it's a good illustration and God gave it to me, so I'm going to use it. <laughs> um, the key question we have to consider, though, is why did God prepare his people? What did he want his people to be prepared to do? Why did he give these offices, these leaders, uh, these individuals for us as a gift? And we see that at the end of verse 12 in the purpose of equipping. And that purpose is for equipping the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. You are being expressly equipped expressly for the work of service. And service uh, carries the idea of, uh, of serving. It's a ministry. We could say the work of ministry. Martin Lloyd-Jones defined it as the work of the ministry is to promote spiritual growth and development. You are being equipped so you can minister to others here. And now we can't fly past this point too quickly. Um, it's, it's the crux of the passage. It's the critical truth that Paul is trying to communicate to each of us here. What Paul had to say to the Ephesians about their role in the church is the same message that God is giving you today about your role in the body of Christ. As I stand up here teaching this morning, what am I doing? What am I doing here? My role, my purpose is to equip you. Anyone who stands here, any of the Bible studies, any of the fellowship groups where you're being taught and trained, the purpose is for equipping. The purpose is to train you for a task. God has placed me here to assist in equipping you, not for your good, but for the good of those around you. That is why you're being equipped. What you learn here is for the purpose of serving everyone else. I'm not the minister. Jack is not the minister here. The elders are not the ministers here. You are the ministers here. You are the ones being equipped to minister to God's people. Our job as elders is to shepherd you, is to equip you, is to, to help you, to train you in that process but, it, but the fact is, you are being equipped to help others grow in the body of Christ. The gifts that Christ has given here in verse 11, the gifts that he has given you in verse 7, the gifts, as Bob mentioned from 1 Corinthians 12, that have been given for you are not for yourselves. It's not like at Christmas or your birthday when you receive gifts that, that someone is giving for you to use on yourself. The gifts that God has provided are for you to help others. You're to use them for other people, not you. The street preacher I told you about earlier, because of his pride, he totally missed this point, completely missed it. The many who only attend church or church, church events but don't get involved, they don't understand God's plan. They don't understand his purpose. Your growth in Christ is not all about you. It's about him. It's about his bride. You will find the most joy, the most contentment, the most pleasure in Christ when you involve yourself in church, not for what you get, but for what you what? For what you give. The focus is not to have your needs met. It is for you to meet the needs of others. We have to change our mentality here. We need to be communers, not consumers. Do you see the difference? You don't you don't you aren't to be a consumer. You're to be a communer. Didn't Jesus himself say it is more blessed to give than receive? And in of himself, he said he came to serve rather than to be served. If you look at the commandments of the New Testament in regards to your relationship with other believers, they focus primarily on what you are required to do for others. 
First Peter four, Peter talks about this. He says that as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Again, you've been given a gift not to unwrap and then keep for yourself. I mean, we laugh at the the guy who gives his wife an iron or a vacuum cleaner for their anniversary, right? But you know what? In a sense, that's what's going on here. You've been given a gift for the express purpose to use for God's house, for his household, not for yourselves. But the mentality of our culture is totally upside down here. Typically, people select a church or a Sunday school class or a Bible study or a fellowship, and they select it based not just they they select it based on what I get out of it. Right. But as we investigate, as we explore, as we select a church or or a fellowship group or something like that, we need to base our decisions not just on what I get out of it, but what do I get out of it that will equip and help me to minister to others? That needs to be your focus. If you think that you don't have a responsibility or that you don't have a ministry, then you don't understand how the church is to function. You're required to minister to others. You're required to to the works of service for others here in the body. That's what you're being equipped to do. And some of you may feel, well, I, I can't sing. That would be me. I, you'd never catch me up here. Um, I can't work on a technical team. I mean, I might break something. Uh, I'm not good with kids. I, I'm really not a good teacher. You know, these are all good things to minister, but they aren't the only ways. Do you know how many ministries are here at Calvary Bible Church? As many people as there are in this room. Because your ministry is people. That is your ministry. That is what you're being equipped to do. I remember one of the most enjoyable ministries I participated in wasn't an official ministry. A friend of mine and I had been leaders at the college group over at Grace Community Church some years ago. And when we moved on from that ministry, we thought we would just form our own little ministry. We called it the Back Row Club. And it was the two of us on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings. We would sit in the back of church. And we would use that opportunity to meet folks who would kind of come in and uh, sneak in and hide in the back. We would talk to them. Uh, We had many opportunities to share the gospel, many opportunities to encourage them to get involved in the body and different fellowship groups there to encourage them towards. A lot of great conversations. That was a fun ministry. It was just the two of us. You don't have to be specially gifted to do something like that. You just have to be committed to minister. You know, Calvary Bible Church is committed to the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. That is a necessary foundation to all that we do here, to the body of Christ, right? Remember the apostles and prophets made up the foundation? They provided the New Testament in order to equip us. That foundation has to be there. But if that's all that took place here was teaching, the body would not grow as God intends because you are part of it. You need to minister in order for this body to grow. You need to employ your gifts, the one another's, all the commands of Scripture, all that the Lord has called you and is maturing you to do. You need to be doing that. So, so far, we've seen the provision for equipping. We've seen the purpose of equipping, which is for the work of service. Look at verse 13 for what I call the progression from equipping. It says there, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. The first four words there, until we all attain, indicates that your job in ministering to fellow believers isn't done until the body of Christ is fully mature, until it's fully mature in Christ. And that maturity in Christ is described here in three different phrases. The first phrase says, 
the description, the first description is the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of, the Son of God. The faith here is talking not about the faith that, the subjective faith that when we come to Christ, but the faith being described here is the objective faith. That is the body of Christian truth, doctrine. It is the faith that talks about in Jude 3, contending for the faith. Spiritual maturity is identified when we all come and are unified under the same truth. And as Paul points out later in 421, that truth is in Jesus, right? What did Jesus say of himself? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Maturity is also described as, as also our unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. And this, the word knowledge here is that full or complete or intimate knowledge. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes it as the knowledge of his personal love to us, our confidence in him and devotion to him in a personal sense. So thus, spiritual maturity is first described here as being unified under what is true of Christ, what is true of his word and our relationship with him, that we share a common relationship with the Lord Jesus. The second description of spiritual maturity is given here in verse 13. It says to a mature man and mature here literally means the having reached its end. It is complete. It is perfect. And Paul uses the body metaphor here of a, of, a, of a man to communicate that spiritual maturity is obtained when the church body as a whole, all of us, look like a mature man. There are under individual passages which talk about the individual believer like a mature man. Colossians 1.28 would be one example. But here it is the corporate uh, setting is in view. All of us together being mature This church is mature when there are no immature parts, when there are no other undersized arms or legs, when there are no oversized feet or, or as in my case, noses. It's when we as a whole reflect a full, mature body. That third description of spiritual maturity gives what or who that mature adult looks like. It is to look like the Lord Jesus Christ, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Said another way, to the measure which is Christ's full stature. And so notice the picture that Paul is painting here as he describes a spiritually maturing body. It is a fully grown, mature man, literally one who measures up to Christ, one who looks like Christ. Our maturity as a church is defined by our comparison to the Lord Jesus. How well do you think we as a body here reflect him? We've been saved not only to be conformed to the image of Christ as individuals, but also as an entire body. This idea is clearly reflected in one very important word, which is easy to overlook in this verse. It's a very short word. Do you see it? It's only three letters long. Until we, what comes next? All. Again, until we all. When I pause, that means you fill in the the blank. Um, Until we all. Very good. See, it's a community that's in view here. The issue is not whether you alone have arrived. That's not what's being talked about. What God intends is that we all achieve spiritual maturity together. Every believer here in this room, we leave no one behind. We're all in this together. Again, you're not being fed here for your own good. God is feeding you for you to exercise. That is the purpose of being fed. You're simply being trained for a purpose that is beyond you. We can tend to have such a self-centered view of the church that, you know, I am here to receive all that God has for me so that I can grow. No, you're not. You are here to receive all that God has for you so that you can help someone else to grow. It's a totally different mindset. 
Let me ask you something. Do you embrace your responsibility to every other believer here in this room? You realize you carry a responsibility to every other person here who is a believer. God has gifted you with the apostles, with the prophets, giving you the church, giving you the New Testament. He's gifted you with evangelists, with shepherds, with teachers, so they can help you in your walk with Christ. And the idea that's being conveyed here reminds me of a game we played at the high school summer camp a couple of years ago. We called it the island. And what I'd done is I'd, I'd taped up a square over here and uh, all around the square. This was the island and all around it was the hot lava. And then I taped a, another line over here and they had to, this whole group had to jump from this part over the hot lava into the island. And the goal was to get everybody on your team within this island in the shortest amount of time. And you couldn't step over the border or, uh, or put your foot over it or you'd have to go back. Okay, and I'm not going to demonstrate this because I don't want to break another toe. <laughs> but pretend I'm flying through the air. What, what was very interesting, though, was every single group of these high schoolers that came up did the same thing at the beginning. It was very interesting. What would happen is the athletes in the group, they would, they would all be just jump in there. So you'd have three or four guys standing here, and then they'd say, come on, they would start... Uh, chiding the other people or showing disdain to th- for them because they weren't as coordinated and couldn't get in here on their, their own. But then they started to figure it out. So you know what? We've got to get the whole team over here. So we have to figure out ways that I can help these people into the, to the island. And I think this is such a good picture of the church. You know, there's a, there's a few of us who would consider ourselves those athletes and we would jump way out ahead. We're growing. We're taking everything in. And, but we leave everybody else behind. And then we start getting frustrated at them for not growing like we're growing. But see, the point is, is this is a, a we need to see this, uh, our growth as a, not as a race or a competition, but as a journey together. We all need to get in the island together. Okay, that's the mindset. That is the church. Remember, you are being equipped to fulfill your responsibility to bring all believers to maturity in Christ. Note the succession here in this passage that we've looked at. First, you've been given the provision of godly leaders to equip you. Next, we saw that the purpose of this equipping is for you to minister to others spiritually. Thirdly, we see the progression from equipping means that your job and ministering is not done until every believer here in this room is spiritually mature as one body. And finally, we see the product or the result of this equipping in verses 14 to 16. A spiritually maturing body is doctrinally stable and causes the growth of itself. Look at verse 14 with me, which continues Paul's sentence here. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. As a result, or so that, tells us that what follows is the result of a whole body growing in spiritual maturity. You see, growing... A growth of the whole body in Christ's likeness first means that each and every individual will be stable in their doctrine. They will be doctrinally uh, able to not be susceptible to heresy. Paul switches from the collective idea of the whole body in verse 13 to the individuals in that body in verse 14. And we see that by the plural use of the word for child and children. And this word here that for children can mean a physical child, but was most often used in a pejorative sense, the sense of a person who's generally childish, of a foolishly immature person, of, a, of one that was infantilely silly. That's what he's talking about here. It's given in contrast to a mature adult in verse 13. 
The plight of the spiritually immature is described like a boat that's being tossed back and forth in the waves of, of an ocean of doctrinal chaos. The threat of drowning, the threat of destruction is ever present. That's the picture he's trying to present to us here. This is a, a boat that's in dire straits. It's a boat that, that can be crumbled and crushed at any moment. And see, that describes a person who is not spiritually mature, that they are susceptible to false doctrine, to every wind of doctrine, which just means uh, doctrine coming from every direction. We would describe this as a, the immature one is, false, is vulnerable to false doctrine from every possible angle. Where does this false doctrine come from? Well, it describes for us here those, the trickery of people who craftily carry out their deceitful schemes. You see, those who are immature in grave danger. And that's the point Paul is trying to communicate here to you. Just a couple of weeks ago, a brother told me about a man who had made a profession to, for Christ. But not long after that, some Jehovah Witnesses showed up at his door and sucked him in. He is now going there. Sadly, the American church is saturated, saturated with false teaching, right? We see many who promise wealth and prosperity or healing or blessing if you'll just send a hundred bucks. I mean, the world is full of satanic deception too, is it not? How stable are you? Could you defend the gospel? Could you defend the key doctrines of the faith? What if a cult came by your door? One did to mine just yesterday. Would you know how to to defend and what the Bible has to say about abortion, about euthanasia, about same-sex marriages, about drug use, about premarital sex, the deity of Christ, the inerrancy of Scripture, the resurrection of Christ? Do you have an answer for the prosperity gospel, for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, for divorce, for going on strike? Would you be able to defend the humanity of Christ, the Trinity? Maybe perhaps you could defend these issues, but what about those around you? Not everybody's at the same place. Not everyone could jump right into that island right off the bat. Right? There are many here that need you to help them in this area as well. It is not just the elders and the leaders here responsibility to protect from heresy, but you also bear responsibility to one another. I remember a dear friend of mine uh, when I was in Idaho. He, he had a muscular uh, and he had MS and he had it for many years and spent a lot of time with him. And I noticed one day as we were, we were together, I, I saw on his shelf he had several tapes from many different faith healers, the worst of the bunch. And I thought about it, and I asked him, I said, what, what are these doing here? And he said, well, you know, sometimes I listen to them. And, you know, that was a moment I needed to get him off of that storm of doctrinal chaos. He was listening to men who were poisoning his soul. So I explained to him why, what was wrong with that, and and as a brother came alongside and helped him with that, you bear that same responsibility to one another. You need to help one another in those areas where, where you could be exposed to heresy. And there's a lot of it out there. We see that in verse 15, where Paul talks about speaking the truth in love. We are to grow in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. You see here that a spiritually maturing body is not only doctrinally stable, but it is also able to grow itself. And we see here that that growth occurs through us speaking, through you speaking the truth to one another. And literally the word here is truthing. It doesn't literally say speak the truth. It says truthing one another. And the idea behind truthing is the context is talking about doctrine. Verse 14 is talking about doctrine. If you go earlier in chapter 4, we are to be truthing one another, explaining to one another, talking with one another about the truth of Scripture. Truthing also carries the idea of being an example to one another, of living out that truth. And I think that's why 
Paul used that word here to describe both effects, not only in our dialogue, but also in our living. And we see many examples of this in the New Testament. Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing or counseling one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Hebrews 3.12-13 is another example. Take care, brethren, that there not be in... In any one of you, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And listen to your responsibility. But encourage or exhort one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you becomes hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, there it talks about your role in the perseverance of the saints. You carry a responsibility to help keep us all on the path. Again, encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Philippians 3.17 talks about our example. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So again, we are to be truthing. There are many more texts in the New Testament and in the Old Testament as well that talk about these responsibilities we have in truthing one another. And notice in the verses that I read, There was no mention of elder or overseer or shepherd. It was directed toward the whole body. Every saint has a responsibility to be teaching, to be encouraging, to be counseling, to be living out the Christian life before every other saint. Are you doing these things? Are you assisting others in their walk with Christ? Are you truthing one another on a regular basis? And as you do so, verse 15 reminds us that this Truthing needs to be done in love. And we sometimes forget that part. <laughs> we can tend to sometimes be, be harsh with one another. Paul's just reminding us gently, remember, to be truthing one another in love. Have their best interests at heart. And to do that, you need to not only know truth, you need to know them. You need to know them. And as if Paul has not already emphasized this point Enough. He ends the paragraph in verse 16 by again stating your role and your responsibility in the growth of all believers to maturity in Christ. Look there at verse 16 with me. From whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. We see here in verse 16 there are two sources on which the body depends to grow. And the first source, the ultimate source, is from whom? From Christ himself, right? But notice in verse 16, it says also that the body itself causes its own growth. The main sentence here is from whom the whole body causes the growth of the body. Paul's very clear when he says that the body builds itself. So it requires both Christ as the ultimate source, but also it will not grow without us. It will not grow if we are not working properly In explaining this growth, Paul describes us like uh, bricks of a building, right? We know the analogy is given elsewhere in Scripture that that we are being built as a temple in the Lord. And that foundation of the temple, as we saw back in Ephesians 2, are the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. And here Paul continues to add to that analogy by describing each of us as bricks or or blocks. Not blockheads, but blocks. You know, and, and as bricks, we come out a little bit rough on the edges, and as God places us with one another, there's a little bit of friction, right, as we rub off those, those rough points with one another. Well, that's all part of our growing together. We're being fitted together, joined together, so that we would look like a holy temple in the Lord. 
that we would be a dwelling of God in the spirit, as Paul says earlier in chapter two. He also has another analogy that he gives here of of uh, what he calls, uh, I think some of your translations may say ligaments. They're actually connecting joints, joints which supply one another. They're more like the idea of an artery that's bringing supplies. We are, we are connected together like arteries in the body, bringing supplies to help one another. Notice in verse 16 that the body causes the growth of itself according to the proper working of each individual part. Paul again here reiterates the critical involvement of each and every person in the body. Each and every person. All parts are related to and interconnected with one another. The body cannot grow unless, as we see here, each part is working properly. Every part must be working properly. Each part. Did I say every part? Each part. Right? You get the message? Paul's been repeating this over and over through this entire passage. Every one of the saints needs to be working for the body to grow. It's like in our own body, you know, if we were just to look at, say, uh, our muscles, right? There, our muscles generate about 85% or more of our body heat, and they're responsible for just about every movement, every motion in the body. But without help, these muscles would simply be pieces of meat, right? Each muscle needs the uh, electronic impulse from the brain that, that carries by uh, chemicals the, the uh, function that it's supposed to perform. And in order for... The muscles to function, they require oxygen, right? That oxygen is taken in by the lungs, which needs another muscle to help pull that oxygen in. And that oxygen then moves into the bloodstream, which requires another muscle to move it, the heart, to pump it back and forth. And all the while, your digestive system is furiously seeking energy in order for this process to all work. Energy from food or from our fat stores. And thus we see the body itself, right? As 1 Corinthians 12 talks about clearly, it's an intricately woven system of interdependent systems. And that is you, every one of you, are a piece of the body. Every one of you who knows the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the importance of each part working? And it's the same for his church. It's the same for his body. And finally, we can't overlook the last two words that end this paragraph. True growth cannot occur where there's not an environment of genuine love. Now, let me say, by way of application, this love is probably great most, um, I was going to say greatestly, but it's, it's best expressed by you sacrificing your time and your energy for someone else. That is a great expression of love, to give of yourself for someone else. So let's take a step back. Let's look at this picture as a whole. I think the message is, is pretty clear. Paul was pretty emphatic. Again, he went one long sentence to really drive this point home. The issue is not church attendance, right? It's not, right? Thank you. <laughs> Wrong. That's even more accurate. Whoever said that. No, it is church involvement. Involvement in the body is the issue. This text, though there are many others, this text by itself blows away any notion that there can be any growth or maturity as a group of believers in the body without being involved in one another's lives. That is a message that is screaming from this text. For growth to occur, we have to be ministering to one another. It can't happen and won't happen if each of us are not working properly, if each of us are not doing the work of service. Each one of you who knows the Lord Jesus is vital you are critical to God's plan for growing his church. And you need to see that. That is a joyful privilege that God has given you. And my desire 
here today is not to guilt you into this, but to help you see, to help you recognize how important you are to this whole interconnected system that we call the church. You are vital to its growth. I want you to see that. I mean, think about who were we? First Corinthians six, right? We were thieves. We were idolaters. We were adulterers. We were fornicators. We were all those things. But first Corinthians six, 11 says such were some of you, but you were washed. You were clean. And now he wants to use you, every one of you, to be part of helping others grow in the body of Christ. You can have a significant spiritual impact on another human being. That is an amazing privilege. God could do all of this himself. We could all just sit here and he could zap us and we could be just like Jesus in moments. But for his own great wisdom, he has decided, I'm going to use these broken people that I'm going to equip, I'm going to repair, I'm going to use them to help one another. What an amazing gift. Now, some of you may think, well, I just don't see how that could happen with me. <laughs> I don't really have any gifts or talents, or I'm a new believer. I've just, I've just gotten to know Jesus Christ, or, you know, I'm just struggling with stuff in my life right now. I'm not motivated. Some of you might be thinking, well, I thought it was the pastor or the leaders that were supposed to do that ministry. Some of you think, I wouldn't know how to minister to somebody else. But don't use these as excuses because it is God's design for you to be involved in helping others become more like Christ. It's part of God's design. And since it is his design, he is going to equip you to do that. Embrace this great privilege that you've been given. Again, God has seen fit in his wisdom and his mercy to use you. Yes, even you, all of you, to be part of his great plan to grow this body. Remember Ephesians 2.10? It talked about there that... God had prepared good works for every believer to do. Well, part of those good works are the work of the ministry for one another. Now, this message this morning is not just focused on getting you uh, to church more or to attend more meetings or sign up for another ministry, which, which those would be good things. But it's not about solely being faithfully attending to these functions whenever fellow believers gather on Sundays or during the week. It's about what you do during those times that you gather that is the important part. I don't care if you haven't missed a Sunday service in 50 years. If you aren't ministering to others, then you just don't get it. It's not just about coming here. It is about being here. It's about being a part of this body. Is someone that you know struggling? Don't tell them to call an elder. You commit to spend time with them. You spend time with prayer. You spend time in the word. You can come alongside. Any, every one of you can do that. Every one of you, who in this church are you spending time with? Who in this church are you sharing your spiritual gifts with? If if you don't know your gift, then serve, 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 and serve some more, and you'll figure it out. How many one another are you actively applying right now? How many are a habit in your life? You know, there's over 50 of them in the Scriptures, 50-plus ways, specific ways that you can minister to one another. And just remember, your ministry is not limited to physical needs. They are important in the New Testament. We see that you people always meeting physical needs. But if that's all you're doing, then you're not doing the work of the service that Paul is talking about here. It includes and is primarily focused on spiritual growth. How much are you praying with others on a regular basis? Who are you helping in their struggle with sin? Who's helping you with your struggles? How many spiritual conversations? I want you to think about this. How many spiritual conversations have you had in the last week with someone else? What are you doing outside of Sunday mornings to involve yourself with other believers? 
One example is uh, we have a men's retreat coming up next month, September 14th to 16th, guys. This is a great opportunity to build bonds with other men, to get to know them in a different context so that you can cultivate that relationship to be able to minister to them spiritually. And as of this week, there were less than 20 men signed up for this. With a church this size, man, that is unacceptable. That list should have a huge waiting list on it. It should be overflowing. And there are many opportunities like that for you to plug in to different areas, different ministries, again, for the purpose of ministering to others within that, of gathering with fellow believers. And they don't have to be official. They could be, I know there's some group of families get together on Friday nights and just spend time together going on a hike and having dinner. That's what I'm talking about. Take advantage of those times that you're with one another to minister and help one another be more like the body of Christ. And to do this, let me give you three questions that you can ask yourself every time you gather with fellow believers. And if you did this and made a habit of this, I I think God would use it to make a great impact. The first question is, was I only edified or did I edify others? Was I only edified or did I edify others? The second question you need to ask yourself is, was my focus on others' growth or on my own? Did I focus on others' growth or my own? A third question, and forgive me, it's a little bit longer, but if if I were to go to that uh, opportunity again, if I were to fellowship with those believers again, what would I do differently next time to help their spiritual growth? What would I do differently next time to help in their spiritual growth? Focus on these questions and you will make an impact. Well, I wanted to show you a, a picture. Not, a, not many, many of you will be able to see this, but... Um, Walt, can you see this? Focus in on <laughs> This is a picture that I cherish dearly. It's a picture of my wedding day. It's the moment when Tina was brought by her father. Ignore this guy over here. This is the, this is the focus right here. This is my bride. This is my bride. She was brought to me. And if, if you see the picture, my eyes are zeroed in right on her. There's a lot of other people in this room, and that's nice that they came, but I didn't care as much as she was there. My bride was there. The joy of my life. And in the moments after this picture was taken, I knew I was going to be wed to her for as many days as God would give us together. I bring this picture because I want you to remember something. This is a picture of Christ and the church. You are his bride. He looks at you in the same way. All of you. You're the bride of Christ. Remember Ephesians 5.25? It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. And he loved that church so much he gave himself up for her. Should you not cherish what Jesus cherishes? Should you not love what he loves? Should you not minister to the body as he does? One author I thought summarized this very well. He said, You see, the strongest argument I know for why you and I should love and care about the church is that Jesus does. And remember, he cares like this. You are being equipped to love the bride of Christ. You're being equipped to minister to your brothers and sisters here so that they could be more like Jesus. Fulfill your responsibility to bring all believers to maturity in Christ and leave no one behind. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Lord Jesus, for the privilege you have given us to be members of one another and to be part of a, of a body, your body, 
to be loved and cherished by you. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege that you've given each of us to not only in salvation, but to minister to the saved, Lord, to uh, be used of you to help one another grow in Christ. And Lord, help us to know how to do that. Lord, given us a desire to be committed to one another, to recognize that uh, you require and desire us to to come alongside each other, even in those simple ways, just by praying, or even like the brother who called me last night, just to pray with me. Lord, I pray you would give us all that mindset. Lord, we thank you so much for your son and desire to please him in all we do. Help us to love his bride as he does. And it is his name we pray. Amen.